Hey, good evening, everybody. Hey, it's great to see all of you, and uh, we're really looking forward to tonight. We are kicking off our series. It's going to last our uh, several weeks now. Uh, it's gone tough questions, and this is put on by the Bible Institute. How many of you have taken a Bible Institute course in the past? Okay, a lot of you have. Um, that's awesome. The Bible Institute is something that Wildwood has offered and offered to our community for the last several years, and it's been classes on Bible and theology and a variety of other topics related to following Christ. And uh, we've typically most recently been offering those up at Randall University. There's been tuition, there's been assignments and those kinds of things. And this spring, we decided to do something a little bit different. Change up the venue, change up the time, change up the format, um, and really address something that we think is valuable for you. And that is to wrestle with some of the tough questions that are asked to followers of Christ. Or maybe even tough questions that you have as you consider what it means to be a Christian and do I have to check my brain at the door uh, to follow Jesus. And so we're going to be talking about that all semester long here on Wednesday nights. And uh, we're so thankful that each of you have chosen to be with us tonight. So as we come together and as we prepare to kick off this time, I want to just say a couple of things by way of introduction. Uh, first of all, tonight is going to be the introduction to the to our time together, and this week and next week we're going to be wrestling with the issue of science and scripture, and we're going to be talking about that with our distinguished panel here behind me. I'll introduce them in just a moment. But two weeks from now, we're going to be launching into uh, a, an extended series that will walk through some of the other tough questions we have about Christianity. And we have another instructor who will be joining us, and that is Tim Lasher. And Tim, I know you're here, but I'm, I'm looking for you right now. Where are you? There he is. So Tim Lasher will be with us uh, helping to teach in the weeks ahead. And those sessions will follow along with a book called I'm Glad You Asked. So this is not required reading, but if you would like to go deeper on the questions that are discussed beginning in week three of our conversation through the end of the semester, there's a table up here, Marcy, I uh, want to wave at us, where you can purchase this book and, and read through it. The schedule for those weeks is found in the back of your handout from tonight. So we are excited, though, as we begin this evening, we're going to be talking about the issue of science and scripture. And we, we've invited two wonderful uh, guests who are, are both Christians they're followers of Jesus as well as very accomplished scientists to join us and to answer some questions that I have and I'm sure you have as well on the topic. Now, when we gather for something like this, I just want to say this up front. Um, we all can talk, <laughs> right? Uh, we, we know we've got 65 minutes between now and when we're going to break, and any of the three of us could easily fill all of that time. You want to hear from me the least. You want to hear from these two guys. But we also want to give both of them the opportunity to share. And so we are going to be keeping a clock on the night. And if you see me flashing some little note cards at them, that's just to keep us on schedule. We also are going to have an opportunity for you to offer some questions that, the, that uh, our panel can answer. And the way that you can do that is by texting in uh, a question. And so rather than having to stand up and ask it in this big room, uh, we're going to have an opportunity for you to send in those questions via text. And then we will pool those and, and pull some of those at the end of our time to be able to ask the guys 
uh, answers to those questions. So uh, anyway, we've got an exciting night ahead of us. Let me pray, and then I will do some introductions with our, with our, with our panel. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to be together tonight. Thank you for the truth. Uh, thank you that we don't have to be afraid as we look for it because you want to be known. And we pray that you would help us tonight uh, just to learn more about how you have revealed yourself to us through the book of nature and through the book of Scripture. We pray that you would give us a, a great time tonight. Thank you for everyone who has made a priority to be here. And I pray that there will be a great blessing in their life as a result. We thank you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we kick off, I wanted each of our panelists to have the opportunity to introduce themselves to us. And so our, our first uh, presenter is going to be Dr. Jeff Farwell. So Jeff, maybe take a moment and introduce yourself to each of us here. Also known around Wildwood as Joyce's husband. <laughs> so Joyce is down here on the front row. And uh, I've been a follower of Christ for 49 years now. Um, did my undergraduate work in uh, chemistry and philosophy. I started with a Bachelor of Science in chemistry, but became, uh, became a committed follower of Christ in college, and then uh, uh, switched to a BA so I could minor in philosophy, and then went to a Western Conservative Baptist Seminary uh, to get a Master of Divinity degree. And after the Master of Divinity degree, um, I decided what I really wanted to do was be a Christian professor on a big secular university campus. And so at that point, I switched from theology to chemical engineering, uh, knowing that I wouldn't have to do a postdoc in order to get a faculty position. So I've been at OU for uh, 37 years now. Uh, Joyce and I have four adult children, five grandchildren, three of whom are probably running around the halls somewhere <laughs> this moment. Um, I've been a department chair in chemical engineering, associate dean of engineering. I'm a member of the National Academy of Inventors. I'm a fellow of the American Institute of Chemical Engineers. I have about 400 technical publications and uh, over 40 patents. So. Anything else? Suddenly, <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I'm very unaccomplished in my life, Jeff. Uh, it's, it's been busy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, that's exciting. Uh, Mike? Yeah, um, I grew up in a Christian family. I come from a family of theologians. My dad was a pastor. My grandfather was a pastor. I have three brothers who are missionaries and seminary professors and like that. But whenever I would come to a decision point in my life, um, God would lead me away from some kind of professional Christian work and into the field of science. I became a Christian when I was young, growing up in that environment. But like many of the things that you're taught as a child um, and as a thinking person, as I became a young adult, I really wrestled with the questions that some of the questions we're going to answer over the next 10 weeks. Things like, um, you know, why do we believe the kinds of things we believe? Um, I went to a Christian university where I could study theology and science, Biola University in Los Angeles. Um, God led me clearly to go to UCLA where I got a PhD in what's called experimental particle physics. So um, I currently am a professor at OU. I've been there 24 years. Um, and I do my research at a laboratory near Geneva, Switzerland called CERN, where we smash protons together at the speed of light, build a detector about the size of this room to see what comes out of those collisions, and uh, have a lot of fun doing that. So that's what I do during the day. <laughs> so you smash particles. Smash particles. That's that, that what I got. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Very, very good. Mm -hmm. um, well, 
you know, as we are, are here, you know, one of the, the things that I think will be helpful for us to, to begin to process, and just just for you guys to know, I'm, I'm having a little trouble with disconnecting. Mm. So, Greg, <laughs> it, it keeps canceling out and disconnecting. So, uh, just, uh, just, just to let Mark, the tech team know in the back kind of uh, what's happening here. But, I, you, know, you know, maybe an initial <laughs> question for us to kick, kick off this conversation, Jeff, um, would really have to do um, with the connection between science and uh, with scripture. And oftentimes, people look at those things and they see them as a contradiction. You both are scientists. Um, you're also both followers of Christ. And for some people, it's like we've just seen a unicorn walk in the room when we hear that about you. Uh, and yet there is no necessary contradiction between those two, right? And so, um, you know, Augustine even said that there's the book of nature and there is the book of, of scripture. And when properly understood, they, they don't contradict one another. Um, but maybe you could kick us off and share a little bit with us about how you see that play out in your experience. Okay. So um, one of the things I hope that uh, you'll be confident of uh, when you leave here, if you're not already, is that science is a Christian activity. In fact, you can make a good case that Christians invented what we call science today. Um, if you look at Psalm 8, uh, Psalm 8 begins with, uh, the heavens are telling of the glory of God, the firmament is declaring the work of his hands. Now that's Psalm 19, but I'm, <laughs> but Greg hasn't, doesn't have my verse up yet, so. <laughs> Here, take this. <laughs> so, uh, and Psalm 8 is wonderful, partly because it's, at the end of it, it says, when I consider the heavens, the work of your hands, what is man that you would have any thought of him? Uh, and it's important you remember that psalm, written 1,000 B.C., um, because you'll sometimes hear uh, on the TV or in the newspaper that uh, when Copernicus discovered that the, the sun was the center of the solar system, that it demoted man and it shocked the church because man was no longer the center of the universe. Um, and it's just completely untrue. Um, the Greeks believed that uh, being at the, we weren't at the center of the universe, we were at the bottom of the universe, kind of where all the bad stuff fell down to. Um, and so there was a general belief before Christian science, that scientists began their work, that uh, uh, the Earth was, Earth was the, the worst place to be in the universe, not the center of the universe, but the bottom. Uh, and this psalm makes clear um, that Christians and um, the Bible have understood always that the reason man is important is because, is because God chooses to make him important, not because of... Uh, Just hit the down arrow. The down arrow, okay. Uh, and in Psalm 19, Augustine, when he talked about there being two books, the book of nature and the book of create, and the book of uh, the, the revealed scriptures, the revealed word of God, um, this was uh, uh, nothing new. Once again, he's just quoting from David, and if we read Psalm 19, it starts off, the heavens are telling of the glory of God. It's almost like the, 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 the creation is declaring the greatness of God. So in Psalm 19, the heavens are telling of the glory of God. The expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. Then the, ver the Psalm ends with, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. 
the judgments of the Lord are righteous altogether. Remember the rest of it. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. So, and this, this is picked up in uh, uh, Romans, where Paul says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it, made it evident to them, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. So, as Christians, we're not afraid of the idea of studying the creation. We are told from Scripture to expect to learn about God when we study the creation. So, in the fourth century, when Augustine affirmed that there were two books, it's interesting when he uses that, he's actually chastising a heretic, and he accuses him of not correctly reading the book of nature. It would have corrected his misinterpretation of scripture. And this two-book metaphor continued all the way through the Middle Ages and right down to the day. And now in the 17th century, there are two scientists uh, who were devout Christians, uh, Johannes Kepler and Galileo. And it's interesting, uh, they were at a point of time when they're, they're really, these, are, these two men are working at the time of the beginning of the scientific revolution. Uh, and there were three views of what the universe was like. There was the old Ptolemaic view, so this dates back to the Greeks, uh, where uh, everything orbited around the earth. The sun orbited around the earth, uh, the stars and the planets orbited around the earth. Um, Copernicus had come up with the idea that uh, everything revolved around the sun, but there was a third model, um, and this was the, the model of uh, Tycho, which said that all the other planets in, orbited around the, the sun, but the sun still orbited around the moon. And looking at astronomical observations in that day, it was almost impossible to distinguish between them. And there were some people that even said, it's not possible to distinguish between them. Uh, it's just too complicated, and uh, we're just finite humans. Galileo and Copernicus said, the God who made the universe is the God that made man in his own image and made the universe so that we could understand it. And they even quoted Jeremiah from Jeremiah 31, uh, 35 and 36, where God says that if this fixed order can disappear from before him, then he would break his covenant with Israel. And the term that they, he uses for fixed order is for a law. And so when we talk about the laws of physics today, we're going all the way back to uh, Kepler and, Copernic and Copernicus and Galileo talking about the laws of God that govern the universe. So that very terminology is a Christian term. Um, now, so why is there perceived conflict? Um, the apparent conflict has been being propagated really since uh, Darwin. Uh, and many of Darwin's followers have pushed the idea that uh, Darwinism excludes God from the universe, that we don't need God anymore so we can move on. 
And some of the Christian response to that has been to try to prevent the teaching of Darwin. And this is where the conflict really came to the forefront, the late 19th, early 20th century. And that is the story that's presented today, is the conflict. And it really starts with this idea uh, that Darwinism excludes God from the universe. So, I'm... Yeah. That's great. Well, you know, Mike, uh, anything else? No, I've just, the slides caught up with me. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, great. Well, you know, Mike, as, as you think about this topic... The, you know, the two books of nature and of scripture and, and how they connect. First of all, maybe share a little bit about why you think that conversation is important. And then also, what would you add to the things that Jeff has shared? Yeah. So, you know, a lawyer came to Jesus and asked, what's the most important commandment of all? And we believe Jesus was God. So here is somebody going to God and saying, God, out of everything you said, what's the most important thing? I think that's a great question to ask God. And the, the answer was to love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And what I find is that this apparent conflict between science and Christianity causes some Christians to want to avoid the whole subject altogether, to not be able to love God with their mind, to not be able to ask tough questions, afraid that answering those tough questions will lead them down a road away from faith. You know, Jeff and I can attest to the fact that ans- asking these tough questions actually increases your faith, um, and studying science does that. So there are Christians who just dismiss science. They won't even... Um, approach the subject for fear of, of, being a, of being led astray or something. I've had students walk into my office who say that they're considering leaving their faith because they can't reconcile what the Bible says with what science says. And they know the science is true because of all the things they see in nature. Um, I work with a bunch of people who don't believe in God and they many times won't even give the Christian worldview a second thought. And that's because of this perceived conflict, that Christians are not people who think with their mind, but instead they're people who dismiss what's clearly evident. And so um, that causes many of my colleagues to not even consider the claims of Christ because of this perceived conflict. I think the conflict comes in a number of ways. It first comes from the different subjects that we look at. The big conflict is probably between evolution and Christianity, and we're going to talk about that some tonight, and between the Big Bang and Christianity. And what we will portray is how uh, those things can be reconciled. There really is no conflict. Um, There's also the idea of what we call epistemology. How do you discover truth? Some scientists will say the only way to discover truth is through nature alone. And some Christians will say the only way to discover truth is through scripture alone. But of course, as Jeff already said, we know that God says that we can discover him through scripture. And so these two should actually reconcile, and we'll talk about that as we go on. And then there are a lot of presuppositions, ideas like um, Christianity is based on faith and science is based on facts. But real Christianity is always based on facts. Uh, Paul said that if Christ did not rise from the dead, then our faith is in vain. If that's not a fact, the resurrection, if it's not a historical fact, then we should be doing something much better tonight than sitting here listening to us talk. Um, The question of whether miracles can happen or not is a question that sometimes um, makes conflict between science and faith. But, you know, these kinds of things um, create this perception that there's a conflict. But in reality, there's a real coherence between the two. Um, the Bible says is God's inspired word. It's God's written letter to us. Um, nature is God's creation. 
and these two should seamlessly mesh. Um, the truth that we find in scripture should agree with the truth that we find in nature. And when we properly read those two, properly read the book of nature and properly read the book of scripture, indeed we find that they actually agree completely. Um, and as Jeff said, scripture says this, Psalm 19.1 says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim the work of his hand. We should see him in nature. Romans 1.20 says, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that they are, people are without excuse. Who's without excuse? Those who don't believe. The unbelieving scientists should see God in nature. And, and I find that's true. The things we've discovered reveal God's character, and it's easy to see those things. It's much harder to make the connection for someone who doesn't believe in God and say, oh, I see that that design really points to the designer. I see that the origin of the universe really points to an originator. But that's what scripture says it should. One of the misconceptions that I find Christians have is how God is revealed in nature. Um, and when I go do a systematic study of how God is revealed in nature, I find he's mostly revealed in nature not through miracles, but through the normal workings of nature. Here's a whole list of things. Um, it says God causes the sun to rise. He feeds the lions. Ancient people knew that God fed the lions actively. It's not a passive verb. But how does he do it? He does it by giving lions instinct to hunt. It says um, God brings forth wine. Ancient people knew you let grapes ferment and they, they make wine, but yet it says God does it. And so all these things that we sometimes look at as nature and, and think, oh, if science finds a natural response, if science finds how we make wine, then there's no longer a need for God. That's just wrong. This is what some atheists think. Like when humans didn't know how thunder worked, they invented a god of thunder named Thor. And when we find how thunder works, we don't need Thor anymore. But what but scripture... you need the rest of the Avengers. What? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Make sure we get that clear. Yeah, yeah. My wife does not want me to diss the Avengers. I know that's true. Um, but, but what Scripture says is when we find how thunder works, we just see how God acts. So I made a list of things up here that I want to bring out and ask you, is, are these things that God is involved in, or are they just natural events? Um, and um, can we go to the next slide? Like the conception and birth of a newborn baby or the miraculous conception and virgin birth of Jesus. Which one is God involved with? The answer is both, right? One is supernatural, one's natural. The healing of cancer through surgery, radiation, or the healing of cancer supernaturally. Making wine through fermentation or making water into wine at Cana. The wind blowing due to pressure gradients. We, we get that occasionally here in Oklahoma, right? Or Jesus calming the wind supernaturally. And then this even go extends to science. If God formed the moon by a collision of a planetoid that hit the earth, or if God made the moon supernaturally immediately, he's just as involved. And it even goes to controversial things like evolution. Now, we're going to talk about evolution. Neither of us believe that the science supports evolution, but suppose it did. If God made bodies through evolution rather than supernaturally immediately, is he any less involved? Of course not. And see, this, this, this takes all of the emotion away from it. When I study evolution, I'm not studying, is this God or not God? I'm asking the question, how did God make our bodies? How was he involved in making our bodies? And then science can answer some of these questions and some questions it can't. So in the Bible, the biblical instruction about God in nature is that he's responsible for everything. It's called divine providence. 
Um, Bruce preached on providence and Esther not long ago. God's totally in control. He's, He's responsible for anything. And the natural processes show his glory just as much as the supernatural. That's why it's so great to study the natural process as a scientist. I see God's glory in how nature works. It's remarkable. Um, And we mostly see God through the natural events. That's what scripture says. Occasionally he does miracles to show himself to a person or people for a particular instance. But the normal way that God works is not through miracles. It's through the the natural realm. Now the Genesis account then, Um, when we look at it and try to understand how it points to what we know about origins, where the big controversy is. Face it, the big controversy is Big Bang and evolution. The Genesis account was written 3,400 years ago in ancient Hebrew to a different people, and it's a one-page account of creation that's goal is to speak to all people in all times and all cultures and all languages. And we do our best to try to understand it. And that's what we're going to share partially um, next week, I guess, not, not so much this week. And what we find is that there's never been a consensus among people who believe Scripture is God's word, exactly what Genesis means, and that was part of the controversy. So these are the kinds of things we're going to talk about in more detail as we try to sh- um, talk about different options for how Scripture and nature both reveal um, the glory of God, which we know that they do. Great. Well, you know, just a, a maybe a, a quick follow-up that is... Not exactly what you share, but you know, over, over Christmas we, we talked about um, the the wise men who were, you know, magi astrologers staring at the at the stars, and because they were looking at that one thing, God was able to use that one thing they were looking at to ultimately lead them to Jesus. Mm-hmm. I just would love for both of you. You both spend time looking at different parts of the universe, um, looking at the smallest particles that God has created, looking at at the chemicals that God has arranged. Um, what, what's the time where you have looked at the, the world that God has created and it's inspired you to worship in, in one way? Just uh, You can go either way. Okay. Um, the thing that has been, I, I have, even though I'm a chemical engineer, I have followed a lot of the developments in physics because I do think that the Big Bang points to Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I think the signature of the Big Bang is God's signature on the creation. Um, in my own work, what I have been, um, what I have stared at in wonder is the ability of mathematics to predict the behavior of the real world. Um, and, um, you know, when I have derived equations to predict the, a phenomenon that's going to occur and then gone in the lab and seen that phenomenon occur, um, you know, it, it's, it's a miraculous thing that the language of mathematics can predict the way the real world behaves. And not surprising then when you see Kepler and Copernicus and uh, Galileo saying, God made mathematics, God made the world, it's no surprise that they fit. Yeah, right. The, 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 the idea that by happenstance, that just all happened. those principles would work in the real world, not just in theory. Yeah. And it's interesting, they, they parted from the, the classical thinkers like Aristotle um, in that like Aristotle thought that, that mathematics was a human invention, and so we shouldn't expect it to describe the world. Wow. Mike, how would you respond to that? Yeah, um, so for me, it, 
the, uh, the thing I deal with mostly is something called quantum mechanics. It's how the world works if you were to get to the size of the atom or smaller. I give a whole hour talk on quantum mechanics and God, and it, you know, it's a fantastic talk. Everybody's asleep by the time it's done. But, um, but when you shrink to the size of an atom, the universe is entirely different than anything we ever imagined. Um, it, you would not recognize the universe of an atom that it would make up our universe, but it does. And in fact, if it was any other way, a series of events would occur that we could not exist. And I don't know about you, but in my life, things don't always go exactly how I would plan them. Um, I don't know if anybody else has that issue in their life. And I sometimes wonder what God is doing in my life. And when I have that question, um, what God says to me in my mind is, don't you understand quantum mechanics? Right, well, nobody really does. But the point is that I do things differently than you would ever imagine. Um, Isaiah 55, one of my favorite verses I actually wrote down, so I'm glad you asked this question, says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Isaiah wants to say God's ways are so different than ours, and he picks an analogy as the heavens are higher than the earth. That's the farthest distance you could ever imagine. He picks the greatest distance imaginable and says that's how different God way, God's ways are than your ways. And I see that in quantum mechanics. And so when my life isn't going like it should, and this caused me to worship, I say, God, your ways are different than mine. I see it in the universe. And yet it's perfectly formed and crafted so that I can exist and be a part of this world. And, and that's what he's doing in my life. He's doing things in a way different than I would imagine, but crafting them for my very best. Wow. Well, uh, as was alluded to a little bit ago, um, we are headed in a direction tonight to talk a little bit more about evolution. And uh, Jeff, you're going to guide us through that discussion here in just a moment. But before we get there, I, I think it's helpful maybe for us to, to think a little bit about um, different views that Christians have, ha have held towards the origin of things. Yeah. And um, I, I say that, well, these are, this is not an evaluated presentation right now. Um, we'll do evaluation in the, in the hours ahead, both tonight and next week. But Mike, maybe could you summarize for us what some other followers of Christ have thought about the origins of the universe um, over the last couple thousand years? Yeah, so tonight and tomorrow night, when we talk about science, you're gonna hear lots of things. You're gonna hear some things you've never heard before. You're going to hear things that Jeff and I disagree on, that Mark and I disagree on. And this is part of a broader conversation. Why? Because within Christianity, there are some essential doctrines we hold to. Um, things like the deity of Christ, Christ is God, that we're saved by grace through faith alone, that the Bible is God's authoritative and inspired word. Um, these kinds of things we hold tightly. And this is one of the reasons when I was looking for a church 20 years ago when we moved to Norman, one of the reasons we settled on Wildwood is because they understood, this church understood the difference between the essential doctrines that we hold on tightly and the non-essential doctrines that we have differences of opinion on. And we all believe God created, but how God created is something we discuss, even what the Bible says about how God created. So we hold tightly to this saying that Bishop Spilato said, in essentials, unity, and non-essentials, diversity, and in all things, charity. 
Those things that are essential, we all agree on. Those things that are non-essential, we have difference of opinion, but in all things we show love. I love the quote by Jesus, by this will all men know that you are my disciples. What, if you agree about everything? No, if you love one another, that's the foundational principle. And so the two controversial things we're gonna talk about are the Big Bang and evolution. And those are things we hold different views on. And so I want to make sure we understand what we mean when we talk about the Big Bang and evolution because I often hear lots of misinformation. So what the Big Bang says is that approximately 14 billion years ago, the universe was created. It began. Space and time and matter and energy began. I once heard someone derogatorily say the Big Bang was an explosion of gas. It wasn't. There was no gas there. It's the beginning of the universe. And since then, we believe the universe has been expanding and cooling. Now, sometimes you'll read that scientists debate whether or not the Big Bang happened, and that's because the, the Big Bang really has two definitions that used to be the same but aren't anymore. One is that sometimes scientists refer to it as the very moment the universe began, and other times they refer to it as shortly after the universe began, like a trillionth of a second later. No one debates, no one, very few scientists debate what happened from a trillionth of a second after something until now, 13.8 billion years ago. They all debate what happened in the first trillionth of a second. Scientists don't like, well, we'll talk about this more. They don't like the fact that the universe might have had a beginning, so they'd love to find a loophole in the first trillionth of a second. But the other thing that's controversial is the idea of evolution. And we're gonna talk about two terms, microevolution and macroevolution. So microevolution is the fact that species will adapt that bacteria can become resistant to antibiotics, for instance, but it's still bacteria. Microevolution is proven. Everyone believes it's true, no matter what you believe about evolution. But it doesn't produce very much new functionality or new information. Um, it's kind of like a natural process that nature does the same way that breeders will breed a certain trait into an animal. It doesn't change the animal. On the other hand, macroevolution says that everything has a common ancestor, and through small gradual change, all life we see came from a common ancestor. It tries to explain all of life through these natural processes. Um, macroevolution says you can produce new functionality, new organs, new information, just through these small um, incremental changes. Now, one thing that is difficult in this conversation is no one defines their terms. And in fact, most people who believe in evolution don't separate macro from microevolution. To most people who believe in evolution, macroevolution, what we normally refer to as evolution, is just simply microevolution over time. If you have enough small changes, you get big changes. So when you hear that evolution is proven, one of the things we all agree on is microevolution is proven. And if you make the assumption that those small changes can make big changes, then you say macroevolution is proven. But it's that assumption and even the evidence for that that we question those of us who don't believe in evolution. So um, I don't take 30 seconds, Mike, to summarize. All right, the, let me take, let me try to take 30 seconds. Yeah. So put up the next slide. There, these are four different views that people hold. Um, the question is, did the Big Bang happen and does macroevolution occur? And some Christians say, God created, but he didn't use the Big Bang or he didn't use macroevolution. We call those young earth creationists. Some say God did use the Big Bang, which will, so the universe is 14 billion years old, but God didn't use um, evolution. 
So the age of the universe and whether or not evolution occurred are two separate questions. There are some Christians who say God did use evolution and did use the Big Bang, and they can support that biblically. So where can you stand of being Christian? Do you have to give up the Big Bang and evolution? No. Um, Dennis Alexander and Francis Collins, who heads the NIH, are Christians who believe God used evolution. The real important column in that chart is, is God the creator, and the naturalistic evolution would say no. There's another option that tries to say the earth is young, kind of, but the universe is old. It's called the gap theory usually, that Genesis 1-1 says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and then there's a long period of time, and then you have kind of a recreation or reformation. Um, sh should we just tell, and, and I think all of these could be biblical. I, if, if you put me on a de debate team and ask me to support any of those ideas that say God is the creator from the Bible alone, I can make a strong case from the Bible alone. Pastors and elders in this church fall under at least three of the four, if not all four possibilities for how God created. It's the beauty of Wildwood. You can believe the Bible is true and support your view and, and be a Christian and even a leader here at Wildwood. Um, should, we, should we tell where we stand on this, or should we wait till next week? Let's wait. Let's All right, wait. we'll wait till next week. <laughs> Let's wait on this, because uh, I, I want us to, to think a little more about evolution. We, when we think about evolution, even in, inside of a church circle, and we bring that word up, it's kind of the E word. And, and yeah. several of you, your blood pressure went up five mm -hmm. points um, as we even brought that up. But as we have this conversation here, we, I'd love, Jeff, for you just to, to walk us through um, evolution as you have thought through it, both as a follower of Christ and as a scientist. Okay, so as, as Mike already explained, macroevolution and microevolution are fundamentally different. So natural selection, the Darwinian model of evolution, is basically just natural forces having the same kind of selective impact on how one generation follows the other. It's like if you're breeding for a certain type of horse, you're breeding for a certain type of sheep or a certain type of dog or a certain type of bird. Uh, you select the ones with the characteristics that you want in the next generation. Uh, Darwin's extrapolation of this well-known phenomenon from the farm uh, was to uh, extrapolate this to explain all of the differences in all of the types of life. And this is what we call Darwinism. Um, now, after the discovery of genetics, after the discovery of genes, um, there was a, there was a uh, uh, great concern among evolutionists that the mechanism had been disproven until they discovered, we discovered mutations. And so what we call neo-Darwinism is the idea that if you take natural selection of animals that have a better possibility of surviving to reproduce, and you combine that with random mutations that you can get to uh, the kind of variety of life that we have all across the known world. Um, now, let's, let's keep going here. So, is evolution necess necessarily atheistic? And as Mike's already explained, it's not. Um, and uh, you, can you can be a Christian and you can believe that God chose the process of evolution to create all of the animals and even Adam and Eve. All right. Now, I know that's a shock to some of you, but this is not in our doctrinal statement at Wildwood because we do not believe this is an essential. Um, and just to drive this home, 
three of my very favorite uh, Christian scholars, C.S. Lewis, Derek Kidner, and Bernard Ram, were theistic evolutionists. Uh, they believe that God created through the process of evolution. Now, I'll, you will, if you ever hear me teach much, you will not hear me teach anything hardly without quoting from C.S. Lewis. Uh, Derek Kidner is my favorite com Kidner's commentaries on uh, Pro Psalms, Proverbs, and Genesis are some of my are my four favorite. Probably has two volumes on Psalms. So. Um, Yet in his introduction to his commentary on Genesis, he explains why he is a theistic evolutionist. Now, he's careful to say that the text doesn't require you to be a, a theistic evolutionist, but it doesn't exclude theistic evolution. Now, I'm going to let the cat out of the bag here. Um, I am actually a young earth creationist, so don't panic. We're not going to be uniformly... Uh, against uh, a young earth here. I'm going to take a young earth position, but it's not going to show up till next week. So uh, um, let's skip to the slide that says uh, evolutionary creationism boundaries. All right, now this is a quote from Kidner's introduction to Genesis. And if I was 30 years younger, I'd be able to read that back there. Uh, but basically what Kidner says, I can't even read it on here, so. <laughs> no, it's good, no, I'll, I'll summarize it. There you go. Okay, all right, what, it, this is what Kidner says. He says, so after explaining why theistic evolution is not excluded by Genesis 1, he says, other scriptures offer certain fixed points to the interpreter. For example, the human race is of a single stock. Paul explains in Acts 17, 26, that all mankind are descended from a single forefather. Uh, the, off, the offense of one man made sinners of us all. Paul talks in Romans 12, or Romans 12, Romans 5, uh, about the fact that through one man all men sinned and consequentially all men died. Right. And when we read the whole New Testament, we see that uh, Adam, Eve, Cain, Abel, Enoch, Noah are just as real as Abraham and Moses. So when we say we, if you're a Christian like C.S. Lewis or Bernard Graham, Bernard Graham, uh, so one of, our, one of my courses in seminary was biblical hermeneutics, which we define as the art and science of the correct interpretation of scripture. How do you prevent yourself from reading into scripture what you think scripture should say instead of letting scripture teach you and our, our textbook was Bernard Ram's Biblical Hermeneutics, and then I find out Bernard Ram is a theistic evolutionist. Right. I went to Western Conservative Baptist Seminary. <laughs> so, um, just imagine what they were teaching at Eastern Liberal Baptist <laughs> Seminary. It was just a mess. <laughs> so, um, mm. having said all that, and, and I'll explain next week why I, I, you know, I'm, I believe the Big Bang is the signature, God's signature on creation, yet I'm a young earth creationist. I'll talk about that next week. But for right now, I want to talk about something that Mike and I completely agree on, and that's that the scientific evidence for the current model of Darwinism called neo-Darwinism is falling apart. And so, yeah. So... Uh, and I, there, there are really eight different evidences that I could have talked about here, but I'm only going to talk about three and maybe only two. <laughs> um, 
Chemical evolution, how you get from chemicals to a living cell, there is no viable theory for how that has happened. Uh, over 70 years of pursuing this, uh, every proposal that has been made has fallen apart. Um, the fossil record has turned out not to support the neo-Darwin model, neo-Darwinian model. Uh, the gaps between different types of animals are too large. The intermediate species aren't there. Um, with the discovery of uh, DNA and our ability to sequence proteins, uh, what we've discovered is that the molecular machines that make up the cells in our body, uh, they don't differ from animal to animal in an evolutionary scheme. They just differ continually. They just differ discontinuously. So if there's an equal amount of difference between my uh, cytochrome C, a bacteria's cytochrome C, a pig's cytochrome C, a bird's cytochrome C, it doesn't follow uh, what you would have predicted from Darwinism. Um, there are complex nanomachines, I wish I had, we had the time to look at some of them, uh, that can't work unless the multiple fitted parts are all available simultaneously. Um, and then a big, big problem that Darwin himself talked about is what's called the Cambrian explosion. And this is a place in the fossil record where all of a sudden thousands of just fantastic creatures with uh, spectacular uh, body plans just appear instantly in the uh, uh, fossil record. And Darwin hoped that the precursor of the, these would be found. They have not been found. And it's now admitted that, they're, that uh, the stratas leading up to that just don't produce those animals. I'm going to talk to you about the, what we call the developmental gene regulatory network. This is a feedback and control scheme that allows a single cell to produce a body that does only has one head but has two feet. So it's quite a, it's quite a trick to be able to pull that off. I'm thankful for that. Yeah, I am too. <laughs> so uh, I, know who I, to look at. I did see a picture of a turtle with two heads the other day. The, its developmental gene regulatory network malfunctioned. Um, it turns out that the DNA is not enough to make a baby. In order to make a baby, you need both the DNA and a template that's in the mother's cell, the mother's egg. That egg contains a template that directs the cell where to put the proteins in order to make the baby. So I think of actually some of Joyce's crotch stitching where you have colored pattern and you put the right color threads through the right hole. The, uh, the maternal cell contains that kind of a template, so as the DNA is produced, it is used to produce, to manufacture the proteins, they get plugged into the right place. Um, and then finally, I'll talk about this at the, at the end, from our understanding of information theory, we can now show mathematically, and you've heard math a lot, we can show mathematically that it is impossible to generate the information density in the genetic code uh, by a random process. It requires an intelligent intervention. So um, uh, let's look first of all at the fossil record. And the fossil record is important um, because uh, it's a, a central tenet of Darwinism is this gradual descent so that every species is connected to older species just like um, you know, the different types of dogs are connected back to the original dog. 
you don't you don't have hopeful monsters that suddenly pop into being so there should be a continual uh, variation from one type of animal to the next and so um, turns out that the, a fossil record full of intermediate types would validate Darwin now their absence doesn't disprove Darwin but it doesn't validate Darwin so what do we actually find when we look at the fossil record next slide uh, all right so this is the, if, if, we, if we look at the order, if we look at the different types of animals, we can see that they're related. So we can see, for example, that uh, canines and um, um, cat-like animals have similar uh, characteristics. And Darwin hypothesizes then there is an ancestor to both of those. And they both descend continually from that. Um, now, so Darwinism changes this classification scheme into a descent scheme, next slide, so that one is, th is the forefather of the, all the rest of them. And Darwin expected to see all the gradations in types, all the way from this uh, ancient primeval carnivore down into all the times of uh, um, animals that we have today that fall into that category. So. Uh, here's what Darwin said about it in the next slide. Why do not we find all these different transitional forms embedded in countless numbers in the crust of the earth? Now, he wrote this in 1872 with the expectation that we would see more as more fossil discoveries happen. Well, what actually happened is, next slide, uh, experience shows that uh, the gaps in that separate the highest orders are not being closed by more discoveries. Instead, the discoveries just highlight the gaps. Uh, and now we can say today, next slide, that uh, we can say that 97, 80 to 97% of all of the existing types are found in the fossil record. So there's a very low probability that all these missing intermediate types, we just haven't found them yet. And this is now the general conclusion of paleontology. Uh, these, these, wide, these enormous numbers of, varia of variations in between the types, they just, they're just not there. Um, so the fossil record fails to verify um, uh, Darwin. All right. Now let's look at information theory, and I'm going to try to teach you a little bit of math and... Uh, <laughs> How many, how many minutes do I have left here? Yeah, four minutes and 10 seconds. <laughs> four minutes and 10 seconds. Okay, so if, if I transmit a stream of data, like on my cell phone or on my streaming video, we can measure the amount of information that's being transmitted by counting out how many alternative, way, alternative uh, strings of data that we could have transmitted that have the same amount of, the same amount of zeros and ones in it. So let's look at the next slide. Uh, this is an old idea, but we've been able to quantify it now today. And uh, so uh, this is Laplace, and uh, you're going to have to read it, Mark. <laughs> it says, on a table, we see letters arranged in this order, Constantinople. And we judge that this arrangement is not the result of chance, not because it is less possible than the others, for if this word were not employed in any language, we should not suspect it came from any particular cause. But this word 
being in use among us, it is incomparably more probable that some person has thus arranged the aforesaid letters than that this arrangement is due to chance. You just used up one of my minutes. So. Mm -hmm. You asked me to read it. <laughs> <laughs> so here's what, here's what Laplace is saying. Uh, if you look at the number of letters in Constantinople, you have 27 options for the first letter. So you can only choose the one that are with, start with C. You have 26 choices for the next letter, 26 choices for the next letter. So given that number of letters, how many choices could you generate? Well, it turns out to be 100 billion trillion. And yet you've spelled Constantinople. So what are the chances that Constantinople spelled out uh, with Scrabble pieces on the table just happened to occur? Well, if every person in the world had about 100 billion, uh, had about 10 trillion Scrabble pieces each, and we all threw them up in the air and looked for Constantinople, there'd be an even chance that somebody would find it. Okay, so now if we just look for the word B, and I have a thousand Scrabble pieces and toss them up, there's an even chance I'll find BE somewhere between those thousand Scrabble pieces. So now if we apply information theory to this, so let's go to the next slide. Uh, we, we can calculate that Constantinople contains 66 bits of information. B only contains nine bits. How much information is in the genetic code? It's trillions of bits. It's trillions of bits. How do we get from 66 to a trillion? Well, it turns out it's not possible. So if we, let's go to the next slide. Uh, if, if you look at the total number of particles in the universe, and we assume the 13.8 billion years, uh, and then we look at the maximum number of clock ticks, it turns out that a clock can only tick 10 to the 43rd times per second. Uh, that's the smallest increment of time that exists. You can't have a smaller increment of time than that. Quantum mechanics is very weird. Right. So if you have every particle in the universe doing a search, every possible clock tick for 13.7 billion years, then information theory tells us that by a random search, we can generate about 500 bits of information. How much is 500 bits of information? It's about a sentence. It's about 100 letters and spaces. Uh, one uh, French mathematician commented, you can't even describe how to build a washing machine with, 100 bit, with 500 bits of data, okay? Much less a human being, all right? Now, I'm gonna try to do one more slide here, one more uh, topic here. Uh, this is just spectacular, so let's go to the next slide. All right, uh, one more slide. One more slide. <laughs> <laughs> this is the Developmental Gene Regulatory Network. Uh, this information has really been developed over the last 20 years. Uh, and it's completely shocked uh, uh, the, the uh, evolutionary community. Um, so you have a single cell that becomes fertilized, and that single cell contains all the DNA necessary to produce the proteins for a human body. Turns out it doesn't contain all the information necessary for the human body, just for the proteins. Right. So that cell divides, and now we have two cells. Well, somebody's gotta make a head, and the other guy better not. Somebody's gotta make two feet, and the other guy better not. So how do you keep track of 
who is responsible for what. When one of those cells then divides again, somebody's going to need to make a heart and somebody's going to make a, need to make a liver. If any organ gets dropped, you don't have a baby. So the way that the developing embryos keeps track of who's producing what is called the Developmental Gene Regulatory Network. And it, it is involved with a continual flow of information that includes a continual extraction of information from the, uh, the cell that comes from the mother. Um, and it turns on certain genes at certain times so that the proteins needed for the next division are available at the time the division occurs. So let me give you a flow chart here on the next slide. This is a flow chart <laughs> of on- Everybody taking notes? <laughs> okay, this is a flow chart of on-off switches, information and material flow in the first 90 hours of the construction of the endoskeleton of a sea urchin. <laughs> it, so what actually, as a chemical engineer, I look at this and, and what it reminds me of is what we call a piping and instrumentation diagram, where you make sure that the stuff you make over here ends up in the right place in the right condition so you can make the next step. It's, it's spectacularly orchestrated and engineered. It's, it's just brilliant. And I, uh, do I have time to read the next quote? Uh, sure. One more, one more quote and then, then we'll wrap okay. it up. So this is the discoverer of the uh, DGRN. He spent his career on this. Neo, now, okay, so this guy is currently at one of the California institutions. Neo-Darwinian evolution assumes that all processes work the same way. So the evolution of enzymes and flower colors can be used as proxies for the study of evolution of the body plan. It erroneously assumes that change in protein coding, that's the random mutations, uh, is the basic cause of change. It erroneously assumes that, any, uh, that evolutionary change in body plan planning morphology comes from a continuous process. All of these assumptions are basically counterfactual. This cannot be surprising since the neo-Darwinian synthesis from which these ideas stem was a pre-molecular biology concoction focused on population genetics and natural history, neither of which have any direct mechanistic support for the genomic regulatory system that drive development of the body plan. So. Mic drop, <laughs> yeah. night over. No, so, he, here's, here's a question. I just to, to ask you. You never expected to hear that in church, did you? <laughs> yeah. So, so here, here is, here's, here's a, a by summary of what I heard you say, Jeff. Um, as somebody who last took a science class in 1991. <laughs> um, but what, what, I, what I heard you say is that there is way too much design mm -hmm. in life and in the world to explain it by random mutation. Is that, is, that, is that accurate? And no matter it. which lever you're looking at, That's right. whether it's this you know, regulatory switches or whether it's the, the chemistry or Mike, whether it's the physics, it's, it's in fact too well designed to just have kind of accidentally happened. And, and, and if, if it didn't just kind of accidentally happen, then the naturalistic evolutionary idea completely falls apart. It, it, tell me if I've got that wrong. Is that it? Yeah, and you know. What would you add to that, Mike? Well, something we would both agree with. I mean, 
if God used evolution, I don't see how it happens with everything we know. There has to be something we totally don't know. And so, you know, God could have done that way, but the science just doesn't hold up. People ask me why I don't believe in evolution. I say, well, I have no problems with evolution from a biblical viewpoint, but I have tremendous problems with evolution from a scientific viewpoint. And, and just, just to point out, too, when you say that, there, there are, are people, myself included, who would challenge that idea for theological reasons yeah. on, on, the, on the nature of the uniqueness of Adam and Eve, primarily. Like, I, I, all the other science goes somewhat over my head in well, terms but, of what I've But Jeff said that. Yeah, right. I, th I think scripture says there's a, a real Adam and Eve. Yeah. So any view you have has to contain a real Adam and Eve. Yeah. And, and just, just quickly, too, this is not in specifically the questions that were asked. We'll get to some of your questions here in just a moment. But one of the one of the things that you both absolutely believe in and is, is the Genesis account, is a, an actual account of God creating um, everything that we know, that there was a time where there was nothing, and then everything came into being. Um, and so just, you know, when, when you talk about different ideas and, and all these, we're, we're talking about processes, trying to observe in the nature, to fill in the, how maybe how God did certain things. But there's no question about who did it, right? I mean, Jeff, what would you say to that? Yeah, I, I, I you know, Mike nor I have any, any doubt about who did it. Um, and I think that the science, especially over the last 50 years, is more and more proving that Genesis 1 is an accurate description of the beginning of both the universe and of life on the present earth. And I think the other thing that's really important, because as I said before, you're hearing new things. We firmly agree that scripture is 100% true and that the stories about the historical events in the Old Testament are 100% true. And, and the goal is just to try to understand exactly what the author meant as he wrote those true accounts of what happened and how that fits into our understanding of the history of the universe based on what we can learn from science. But I think it's so important to realize that both Jeff and I agree that scripture is 100% true and nature gives us an accurate representation of God and we're wrestling with the best way to put that all together. And that Christians should never be afraid to examine the book of creation. Because it will point to a creator and the history of science over the last 50 years has reinforced that. This connects to one of the questions that came in. And so we, we've talked about the book of creation and you know, pointing back to a, a quote from Augustine. But when we say that, we don't literally mean a book. Right, so let's just, just fill me up. When we say book of creation, what, what do you mean when we say the book of creation? Well, I, you can answer that. I, I'll just start, but I mean, one of the things we see is like uh, in seeing the motion of the sun and the moon and the planets and the fixed stars, we are able to discern that uh, the sun is the center of the solar system. And we can formulate a mathematical equation that describes it. And so as Kepler says, we are able to reproduce God's thoughts. Yeah, I would, I would say that it, it, Scripture tells us we see God's character in nature. The heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hand. So it's not, it's not special revelation, which Scripture is. It's what we call general revelation. It's another way we can see the very character of God. So it's not a book on the same level as the 66 books of the Bible. Those are specially revealed. But it is a way that, one of the, that those special revelations tell us we should see God's character. And I, I think I do think of Psalm eight, 
where uh, David says, when I consider the works of your hand, what is God, what is man that you would consider him? And I'm, I sometimes imagine David laying out in the pasture, seeing the Milky Way, and just being overwhelmed with his smallness. And now I think if he could have, if he could have known that we have, live in a universe of 300 billion galaxies, billions of light years apart, it just reinforces our total insignificance apart from the fact that God values us. Yeah. In other words, the more we know, yes. the more we know, not, not the less we need God, but the more we realize the greatness of God. Yes. Just a, a powerful, powerful. He's God. just not like us. <laughs> yeah, there's a, another question that came in. I think this is a great question to, to consider here. Um, it says, from my limited knowledge, legitimate science requires the subject must be observable and testable. Considering macroevolution is neither observable nor testable, is it safe to call it legitimate science or simply an assumption based on the fact that microevolution is a fact? So is there, in other words, is there, is there a religion behind neo-Darwinism? What would you say so to that? What I would say is that science is not easily definable. We believe in forensic science. You believe people should be um, prosecuted in court based on forensic evidence. And that's not testable or reproducible. Yet we would call it scientific. So I think we need to be careful. Even scientists have trouble defining science. I would say that from my perspective, the extrapolation from micro to macro is not warranted by the evidence. But of course, the Christians who are um, theistic evolutionists or evolutionary creationists would say it is warranted. And so I don't think, but it's not because it's not science necessarily, um, because science has a, a much broader definition sometimes among people who actually practice science. I, I think it's a legitimate science, it's, legitimate, it's a legitimate hypothesis, yeah. which I think the, sci the current science is showing is not feasible. Yeah. But, but, you know, we know from the history of science that it's hard for people to let go of an idea until they find an acceptable alternative idea that explains the data better. Interesting. And, and if the only other acceptable alternative would be some kind of theistic-based creation, that's an unacceptable alternative. Yeah, it's going to be no more acceptable than when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Yeah. And the Pharisees' response is, if he goes on like this, everybody's going to believe him. We have to kill him. Well, here, here's another fantastic question. We'll take it a different direction, um, but I think an important one. Is it difficult for you to keep your faith while working in a science field? Um, if, if so, however you would answer that. Also, what are some recommendations you would have for somebody who's coping with that difficulty? So I, I'm sure that that describes the story of not one, but of several in the room. So how would you all advise or, or counsel in this, to this end? Um. I think there's a couple things. One is I, when, I, when young people who are thinking about going into physics come and talk to me, the first thing advice I give them is do your job really, really well. If you're a really, really good scientist, then there's a lot of leeway. The joke I make is if you're a really, really good quarterback on Friday night, you have a lot of leeway what you do on Thursday, right? We understand that in the Sooner State. And so the first thing is do your job really, really well. The second thing I will tell people is be really wise in how you present your faith and when you do it and what tone you do it with. You should present your faith. You should be out there as a Christian. But do it in a way that builds bridges to people and draws them to Christ not, and, and that's appropriate. And, and I found that with those two pieces of advice and a few more things of trying to be a really good scientist, a really good professor, and, and being strategic in how I share my faith and when I do it, 
that I've actually not had too much, too much opposition to the fact that I'm a Christian. I, I would agree with that. I, I think if you do your job well, and, and for us that means being a good teacher, it means um, being there when your students want to meet, it means getting your test graded on time, and um, things like that. Um, and then being a good citizen in your department, people still will, they'll, people will listen to you. Well, I, you know, one, one thing I, I, would, I would just reiterate, um, I, I've got a unique vantage point here in that I've, I've known both of you men for 20 years now, um, and I've been personally encouraged by you in so many ways. And, and one of the things I would just encourage all of you with is that though oftentimes when we invite Jeff or Mike to, to talk or share, they might be sharing from their experience as a scientist because that's what they are um, in their vocational world. Um, but these men both have so much to offer and everything beyond that. Um, as husbands, as fathers, as followers of Christ, teaching scripture in so many different um, venues and forums and ways. And I just wanna thank you so much for just being faithful to follow Christ. Not just when we invite you to come up here and talk and you have to put something together, but this flows out of the, the rhythm of your life, uh, following Christ. And, and when we get to heaven, um, friends, there will be rooms bigger than this full of the people that you both have impacted, um, both through your work here at the University of Oklahoma, but also as God has used both of you men um, all over the world uh, through your writing and through your teaching and through the opportunities that God has given you um, to, to really impact. And then how those you have impacted will impact others. Just, just want to just want to thank you. And it just, you know, again, we, we, we start quick. We started fast. We start right in the middle of this conversation because we have a very limited amount of time to talk about the issues of science and Christianity. Um, but I, I want to put both of your lives and testimonies in a larger context and just thank you for, for following Christ. So, um, well, friends, we are, we are just getting started uh, in this. So this is a part of a 10-week course that is going to, to roll between now until um, in, later on in this semester. Next uh, Wednesday night, we're going to be continuing our conversation of science and Christianity, and we'll be a little more focused next week. Um, so we covered a lot of things in terms of introduction this week, but next week we're going to talk uh, more specifically about some differences. You heard some terms today that for some of you are like, oh, I know exactly what they're talking about. I can't wait for them to talk about it. When they mention things like Big Bang, Old Earth, Young Earth, those, those concepts and ideas, some of you are like, I'm ready for that. Other, you're, others of you are going, wait, what? What are they talking about? Well, next week we're going to talk about uh, the age of the earth and how a Christian can look at scripture and can look at scientific evidence for age and, and wrestle with those things. And so uh, Mike and Jeff, you both are coming from a slightly different perspective, both embracing Genesis 1. Uh, but, but looking and connecting some of the specifics of that. And I'm really looking forward to us being able to talk about those things. So you'll each have an extended period of time next week to talk about the origin issue from your perspective. Um, and we'll, we'll have that, and then we'll also have some opportunity for us to field some questions and do some follow-up. Um, after next week, then we'll begin the rest of the Tough Questions series. And Mike and Tim will be guiding us through a number of other topics. On the back of your handout, again, it goes through what some of those topics are, and we would love to have all of you here for each of those nights. Um, I, I hope, has this been valuable tonight for, for y'all? Um, 
it's been valuable for me. Um, and, and I heard and understood half, maybe, of, of what was shared. But, but every time I hear it, it I hear something new. And, and hopefully uh, this, is, this has been helpful for you tonight to that end as well. Hey, thanks so much for coming tonight. Again, we have a table up here. Um, Marcy will be present here afterwards. If you'd like to get a copy of the book, I'm glad you asked. Um, and then also we'll be hanging out up here front if you'd like to come forward. Slides and podcast. Yeah, so we were going to present the, the, the slides and the audio from tonight will be available uh, for your access. And so as soon as that site goes live, we'll make sure that that is shared uh, next week, if not sooner. And uh, at the end of the slides on evolution, there is a reading list. And if anybody wants a recommendation off of there of where to start, I'd be glad to. Yeah, th there are 65 slides uh, for our time tonight. And those will be in a PDF that will be available to you. So if you'd like to go deeper, read those slides. There's a lot of great information on there that we didn't have time to cover tonight. So, man, thank you so much, and thank you all for being here. And we'll be hanging out up here if you'd like to come and, and talk afterwards. We'll see you next week.